Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello, and welcome to this bonus New York Fashion Week edition of the Glossy Podcast. I'm Jill Manoff, Glossy's Editor-in-Chief, and for today's episode, I sat down with Misha Nunu, founder and creative director of her namesake fashion brand, Misha Nunu. We invited Misha to discuss the evolution of her business model, her company's plans for physical retail, and the downfall of the traditional runway show. The Glossy Podcast New York Fashion Week edition starts now. Hey, Misha. Hi. Nice to see you, Jill. Nice to see you. Happy Fashion Week. Thank you. <laughs> have you been following along? Um, I haven't really been following that much, aside from when I open up Instagram and, you know, I see some images from various shows and stuff, but um, I haven't really been keeping up with anything. Nice. We have a lot to dig into. I know that you have experience with, with Fashion Week on, off, kind of changing it up for sure. Yes. Before we jump in, let's just talk about your company, your business model. It's unique to say the least. Yes. Um, you know, I've been in the fashion industry now for eight eight years or so. Um, I've always, I started out as having my own label and um, it has evolved so much over the years. You know, for the first five years, it was a wholesale business and I started my business working with the likes of Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus and major department stores and have seen how that evolution has taken place. And um, I did four collections a year. I did runway shows at a certain point. Then I came off runway shows and I did everything via social media. Um, We've kind of tried lots of things. And I think that the thing for me is that we then at a certain moment, or I decided that um, fashion really, in order for it to be sustainable, not just from a business perspective, but from an environmental perspective, it really needed to change course. And there was so much waste and there was so much um, noise going on. I heard someone call it product pollution at a certain point and I couldn't agree more. And it made me sad to think that I was contributing to that. So um, I went kind of back to the drawing board and I thought about going back to basics and designing eight pieces that would work in tandem with each other and create all these different looks, 20 plus looks, uh, which we called the Easy Eight and relaunched with. Um, We launched as a direct consumer brand three years ago and um, we haven't really looked back since. We have such an incredible relationship with our customer now. We have a very engaged audience. Um, We cater to a woman that we say is, you know, going somewhere from 9am to 9pm every single day. So she needs versatile pieces in her wardrobe that are going to be able to take her throughout those various different touch points of her day. So, you know, say she's dropping her kids off in the morning and then she's got a a meeting at 11 and then she's got a lunch and then she's got cocktails with friends and then dinner with her husband. So many different things that you have to look appropriate for um, and still feel good and feminine and, you know, have a little bit of sexiness to you. And that was really where the idea of the collection was born from. Um, Yesterday, I was at the tennis and um, I was going through my day, my week, my month and how crazy it is this month. And someone, and I was like, you know, I've got this crazy day and we're opening our pop-up tomorrow. I was like, I haven't even decided what I'm going to wear yet. And they're like, well, that's okay. You've only got eight things to choose from. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Good point. I'm good. (laughs) But you can create 22 looks, right? (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, change your shoe, change your bag. It's, yeah. Talk about your kind of eight pieces. And I know on your site also, you kind of sell things as packs. Mm -hmm. Um, I know since, since you launched and since you moved to this model, you know, others have done the same. We 
we've talked to wardrobe NYC. I know mm-hmm. they do also do kind of seasonal sets um, for a similar price point. How how is the sale of sales of this kind of set or the packs comparing to maybe the individual individual pieces? You know, it all shakes out in the wash. I mean, our shirts are our best-selling items, and people buy packs of them because they might buy one and then come back for a three-pack. But our top 10 sellers are your classic staples, and sometimes people buy them in packs because, A, they might have you know a higher household income and they can afford it. But don't discount that person who comes in and buys one piece and then over the course of the year buys another four, which is the equivalent to a five-pack. So to me, it's really important that we look at all types of consumer spending and behavior because everybody has slightly different habits and patterns. We have a customer spread out all over the world. It's not just America. Um, And that's something that I'm really proud of because of my international background in the first place. Um, But the fact that we have orders come in every single day from Australia or New Zealand or Singapore or whatever is, I think, really meaningful. Um, It means that this woman, not only is she global in terms of her appeal, but she's also someone who travels globally. Now, we have a, a friend in common, Sarah Flint. I talk to her a lot about um, designers, footwear. Um, yeah. Talk to her a lot about um, the move from the wholesale business to direct to consumer because, gosh, I, it just seems like it would be a big undertaking. How was that transition for you? Um, it It is a big undertaking because it's a completely different way of doing business. All of a sudden, you are the retailer. You're no longer relying on other people to sell the product for you. You have to sell that product yourself. So you have to think about marketing tactics. You have to think about, you know, at first we weren't, uh, we didn't go on demand right away with our, um, we're inventory-less, just to kind of backtrack for a second. That's another way that we're sustainable as a fashion business is that we don't actually hold inventory. So every time an order is placed on the website, it is then produced within seven business days. So, um You know, we had to think about all these different things when it came to, you know, where we're going to hold inventory, how are we going to navigate that if we didn't hold inventory, how do you market to your customer, how do you engage new customers, it is a very challenging thing to do. And I think, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago when the likes of Warby Parker and people like that were really coming out and being direct-to-consumer, customer acquisition was a very different situation to what it is now. Customer acquisition is, you know, you're not really going through your paid channels like Facebook and Instagram and the way that people could once rely on them. So it's a it's a very... Um, different model it's something that you have to constantly be looking at and changing up and it's it's fantastic um it keeps you on your toes for sure but I wouldn't change it for the world because I think that wholesale businesses are not in a particularly great place um and I think that the level of control that we have over our business is something that I wouldn't uh forego definitely you were early on in the direct-to-consumer model how were you marketing when you first took off um, it was a it was a variety of different things. Email is obviously one of our strongest channels. Um, it, to begin with, we were doing Facebook and Instagram. Um, we're thinking about scrapping that completely at this point, um, and that's only after three years. I mean, like you know, that's how quickly the game has changed. And then we were doing like a lot of events, so we would do small events, and I would travel around the country and things like that. Um, so it's a lot of like you know actual physical meeting people and you know I think word of mouth is still the best way um press of course uh traditional PR 
your people who endorse the product for you, things like that. It's a lot of different marketing tactics that you have to put together and hope that, you know, something sticks. <laughs> yeah. Are any of the digital channels, platforms working for you? So if you're moving on from Instagram, Facebook, are you finding success on maybe Pinterest or elsewhere? Uh, Instagram and Facebook are still the most, are still the best. Yeah. But we just, based on the fact that we always see ourselves as being ahead of the curve, we're letting those channels go because we just feel as though there's more to be gained from other ways of marketing. I mean, if you have a limited marketing budget, um, you really have to think about where you're putting X dollars every single month and how you're reaching that person. Right. So you're opening a pop-up today, speaking of yes, exactly, <laughs> a different exactly. marketing tool. Yes. Tell me about that and kind of um, your approach. Well, we um, opened our first pop-up in London in June. We did it for the month of June, which was a phenomenal success. It was on Marlebone Lane. It was amazing. Um, we absolutely loved that. And having that direct interaction with the customer was so meaningful. Being able to um, speak to her and for her to not only meet you know, representatives of the brand, but me, if I was in the store at the time, really made such a difference. Um, I could actually see her in the clothes, hear about her pain points, hear about what she does. You know, we had always said that we um, dressed, you know, a working woman, a professional woman. Um, and it was so wonderful to come in and hear about women who had started their own businesses. So they were entrepreneurs. They were stockbrokers. They were lawyers. Um, some of them were, you know, part-time working from home because they had two children but everybody was doing something um, and I think that that really realized what we had um, thought all along but it was really nice to kind of be able to tick that box. Yeah so what were your learnings from that experience that you brought to this new experience? Um, in how, New York. how important it is to have something, you know, in terms of products, such such that people can interact with. So, you know, we have quotes all over the store. Um, and my dog Thatcher wasn't in London, sadly, for the <laughs> month of June, but um, she will be in New York. And, um, you know, just having little things that make the store special. I mean, if you think about what people are not interested in these days, I think it's a homogenized experience. Mm -hmm. So say you go into even an incredible store like Dior or Chanel or whatever, it's the same experience wherever you are in the world. And that is that controlled environment is wonderful from a brand perspective. But for us at this early nascent part of the game, it allows us the freedom to really test things and to say, well, in London, you had this experience, but in New York, you're going to have this slightly nuanced experience. You know, in London, we barely served alcohol. In New York, we'll have bellinis every morning. Just That's just an example. But um, things like that really allow you to test, change, iterate. Obviously, London was only one one month, New York is going to be four months. So all of those little things um, that we get to play with and test are, are you know, very important and um, are just allow us to learn more about what our customer wants. Definitely. So obviously you're, you're launching this pop-up in preparation just before the holiday season. Was there also a strategy in terms of launching it during Fashion Week? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't done anything during Fashion Week and I'd completely kind of forgotten about Fashion Week for um, a little while, I would say probably two years and um, didn't miss it, you know, was very happy to not participate in any way. Um, but I figured that the way that the calendar was being stripped back and things were changing and there wasn't as much because one of the reasons that I went online with my show and I went from a physical runway show to an Instagram show was because I heard editors and influencers all day long say oh my god my schedule's so busy and I can't make it to this and you know even people who are good friends of mine were like I don't know if I can make it from uptown to downtown to midtown to and I was like oh god it just sounds so exhausting even thinking about it so um 
I think that now that the calendar is a little bit more open and free, that people are willing to take the opportunity to kind of come and and see something. So I kind of thought, well, there'll be a little bit of buzz around Fashion Week and why not kind of participate in that whilst there's a bit of a halo effect? Absolutely. So it's a showroom model. It's it's not a come, buy, pick it up, put it on, go to Fashion Week. And also your, your model is on demand. So there is kind of a delay. So as we speak a lot to kind of this urgency and immediacy of a fashion that's happening right now. I mean, who is your customer? How are you communicating the process and why is she willing to wait? I think that um, there's something to be said these days for delayed gratification. Um, And I also think that our model is built on, you know, your perfect staples in your wardrobe. And you might not be able to wait for the dress that you need, if it's Friday, the dress that you need to wear to a party on Saturday night. But you certainly can wait for the white button down or the perfect pair of black trousers that is going to be in your wardrobe for the next five years. Um, So I think that there's something to be said in terms of product. And I think that, you know, we've communicated that to the customer and that there's a sustainable aspect to it. And I think that a lot of people are really interested and increasingly so in the sustainable movement when it comes to clothes. I think people have just got to a point where they are fed up with so much. And certainly this woman is not someone who is shopping on a weekly basis at Zara and H&M. She's looking to invest in her wardrobe. So uh, we give her those investment pieces and, um, you know, waiting a week for something we don't think is such a big deal, especially if you wait two weeks and you can get it monogrammed with your initials on it or something like that. So it's really about the specialness of the item and how waiting for it, it doesn't feel like a burden as a result of that. Yeah. Is anything else, do you think, working in terms of um, fashion brands moving to a more sustainable model? I feel like on demand, I mean, makes perfect sense. (laughs) Maybe the only way to go about it. I don't know. Like, what's your take on what else is happening in the space? Honestly, I don't see a lot of other things happening in the space. I hear people talking about things like, you know, Zara wants to have shorter production time so that they can, you know, get a better read on things. But I mean, look at the scale of that business. I mean, it's just so hard to think about, you know, levels of waste even though you know even if they were to be able to cut back you know waste by one percent in that business it would probably be enormous when you think about how big the business is um i think whatever anybody is looking at doing is great i just think that it's important that people actually do it they don't just talk about doing it i think people are really serious and they're becoming increasingly serious about how they dress, how they shop, how they consume whether they want to become plant-based because they don't want to you know the the meat industry is so um, detrimental to the environment. Everybody has their own take on it. There are certain things that you have to do that are necessities in your life, whether it's travel, whether it's, you know, eat a piece of meat every now and then. I just think that it's as long as you are conscious and you're aware of it, that is a really big step forward. Let's circle back to the pop-up really quickly. Um, It just reminded me of, um, we brought up Sarah Flint. (laughs) Um, Multiple brands are being sold in-house. Yeah. Can you... What, what was the strategy behind that and why? So that was what's the partnership actually too? Yeah, so actually that was something that came off the back of London. So in London we had partner brands, but it wasn't in such a formal way. Um, we kind of just said to EYM Candles or Aurelia Skincare, like, would you like to showcase some of your product? And, um, you know, if it sells, we'll sell it for you. It's a consignment basis, you know, whatever. And um, people were really excited. It went really well. We sold some of the product. It was great. And it was all sustainable and female-founded brands. And so we decided here to take it one step further. And I approached Sarah Flint because Sarah and I have known each other for several years. um, And I really love her shoes. But but also because... um, 
in London, people would come in wearing sneakers and then they would put a skirt on or a pair of trousers that needed a heel. And I was often taking my own shoes off and letting people use my shoes to try things on. And I thought, this is a real miss here. Like we could be selling shoes as a part of the whole look. So so we have um, B and Kin handbags. Uh, we have, so again, it's all female founded. We have negative underwear. We've got Sarah Flint shoes. We've got Pat sailing um, antique jewelry. Um, and we have the laundress. So it's all about post care of your product as well. Um, because again, not everything needs to be dry cleaned. It's just how you handle and how you, you know, look after things. And that's a big part also of uh, the story, longevity of clothes and how you look after them. So I suppose the partnership aspect really took on a secondary life of itself here where, you know, people have their own store staff so that people can, you know, each brand can really have people tell the story of the brand um, and explain the product. Um, and I thought that it was just a really nice thing for us to be able to offer the customer to, in a way, be able to give her a head-to-toe look from, you know, her undergarments to her clothes, to her shoe, to her bag, and then to post care of the product too. Are they also using the showroom model? Do you order a Sarah Flint boot or is everything yes. on site? No, you you would order it. Um, I think there's limited stock in certain things, but um, you, um, it's more of the showroom model. Great. Talk to me about the programming that went that's going into this pop-up and kind of... I mean, it's more than just clothes and fashion. Yes. <laughs> How no, are you representing course. your brand? No, it's um, we've actually in uh, the week of uh, October 14th in New York, we are doing a conference in the store. So, um, you know, that'll be four days of programming where we have lots of different um, people coming in. Um, but we've, we've decided to have people from across the board, um, whether it's someone that I work out with, like a Tracy Anderson, come in and discuss, you know, uh, workouts and fitness and wellness and things like that or whether we have um, the ladies from Aurelia Skincare come in and do um, facials for a whole day or actually I think three days or whether we have Bobby Brown talking about her new wellness collection we've got a whole bunch a whole host of different people coming in and wellness um, mindfulness all of those things are very important and integral to my routine and I wanted to share that with um, our customer and, and also just with our followers in general Absolutely. Why Soho? Um, well, through analytics, we were able to see that, you know, in New York City, Soho was one of our top areas in terms of deliveries. So we knew that we had a customer there. And um, we toyed with a couple of different ideas, um, but this space came up and it was perfect. And it was it was just the right kind of location and look for us. So we know we have a customer there. You also have a tourist that in the holiday time will come in and drop in and everything. Um, so, you know, we don't know that Soho is going to be it. You know, obviously we'd love for this location to become permanent if it's a success. If not, we might end up moving to another location in New York. We will see. Got it. <laughs> we talked to a lot of direct-to-consumer brands that really, you know, for growth, they're looking, they're expanding to new categories or span- expanding to other countries internationally. You mentioned London. What's your breakdown of your customer right now? Um, so 75% of the business is uh, U.S. It's domestic. And then 25% is international. So um, it was less last year, but based on what we did in London, that has grown to 25% of the business. Got it. And other categories? <laughs> You know, I think that that's kind of our our foray into other categories is what we're doing with our partner brands um, by allowing, you know, other people into the space. I would like to focus on what we are experts at, and that is dressing you, and um, allow other people who are experts in that fi- in their fields to 
you know, give you the shoe, the bag, the underwear. Um, I think that I picked the brands based on the fact that I actually like those products. And um, so it's an endorsement of, of sorts. I've always wanted to sell other people's products. Doesn't mean that I necessarily want to make all of those products myself. Have you tried collaborations in the past? I have, yes. Uh, we did a very, very successful collaboration with Aldo Shoes. Um, and I suppose, you know, design is so fascinating in that, you know, actually the stud that I created for a shoe then went on to inform the stud that I created for, you know, a, a piece of clothing. So there are, you know, influences can come in lots of different ways. But I think the next thing that I would really love to do would be to get into interior design personally. That's a collaboration that I'd love to do. That would be killer. And putting it out there into the universe. <laughs> Definitely. So who else? A female-founded brand, somebody sustainable-minded. What makes kind of, what else would make a great partner for you? Look, I think that anything when it comes to health, wellness, fitness, um, all of that makes an exciting partnership. Um, the interior design, decor. I think that... Um, there's a lot to be done for this professional woman. You know, she is time starved, but um, it doesn't mean that she doesn't want to look great. She doesn't want to feel great. She doesn't want to do all of the things that other people who have a little more time on their hands get to do. She doesn't want to skip her workout class just because, you know, she's so busy. So um, I think being able to give her those tools in whatever method it is to remedy um, how she feels in terms of not having enough time is really where we look at, you know, creating life hacks for her and starting the starting point for that was clothes and um, I think that you know we'll come full circle in where we go and what else we offer her and so you know the partnerships that we're doing for now are the first foray into that um, and who knows what this store will evolve into you know I mean obviously it's it's a very large space and it's big enough for us to hold these conferences and have people into the space and um, do talks and all that kind of stuff but who knows where else it's going to go like who knows in the future whether you know we'll do you know, collaborations with other people and it'll be in-store only and not online. You never really know what that online offline activation will look like. With Tracy Anderson, I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. She's the best. <laughs> Definitely. So gosh, as, as the company has evolved mm -hmm. and you're balancing kind of the creative and the business side of things, gosh, what important players have come into the mix and how has the, the company and the inner workings evolved? You know, we're still a very small team. Um, I hired a COO earlier this year, um, which has been great to help run the business, but it's a really, really small team and um, I'm extremely hands-on in, in all of it. You know, we would like next year to evolve further and to grow the team, um, particularly if we keep this store permanently and then we look to do, you know, we'd love to do a pop-up in LA um, and think about how we might be able to hit the road in other um, cities that are important to us in, in the United States, um, maybe even do something in Australia. Yeah, so we have, um, we're very ambitious with our plans um, and we will need more people. Um, but right now we're a really, really small team of seven people. So Seven? Yeah, we're extremely small. Everybody is overworked. And, um, and I don't take that for granted. You know, I say all the time, like, thank you guys, because it's not easy um, to show up every day and put in 110%. Honestly, as you're the name, namesake of the brand... Do you find it important to kind of be out there, be the face of the brand, be active on Instagram and social media? Um, is that how important is that? You know, I walk a really fine line between um, being the face of the brand and then having my my private life because I think it's really important that you kind of, um, if privacy is important to you, that you that you keep that. I 
don't see myself as being someone who really spends a great deal of time on Instagram, particularly anymore. Um, I used to spend far too much time on it, but now actually I do, and I haven't logged onto Facebook in probably over a year. Um, but I, yeah, I think that actually for me, it's it's more important that when I'm representing the brand and showing up every day in it, that you get kind of the fullest version of me. I give you that, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get like, what I'm doing at the weekend on my Instagram account. Um, and I think that kind of makes it more special when we do share things. So it's, um, and I'm not sure that's the right strategy, but it's the strategy that works for us just because having a modicum of privacy in, you know, my private life is, is important. Totally. Gosh, as wholesale partners, retailers, they, I don't know, they they become more nimble and um, agreeable in terms of what they'll um, facilitate for a brand in order to kind of win them over. Um, if if there was any chance that maybe a Bloomingdale's or a Macy's would say, or Saks or Neiman, <laughs> um, would say, you know, we'll allow this kind of on-demand um, ordering in-store or model and mm-hmm. facilitate that. Is wholesale ever in the cards for you, going back to that model? I would never say never, but the terms would have to be so different that I don't know that they would be able to do it. So, you know, you'd have to be looking at like an inventoryless showroom model, um, which is just totally counter to what a department store is. You walk out with merchandise. Um, It would mean a shift in consumer mindset. It would mean a shift in wholesale, you know, retailers mindset. It would mean so many shifts. Um, They'd have to think about margin completely differently because obviously being a direct consumer brand, we don't take the margin that they do. We take a much smaller margin. So um, how they would then have a chunk of it. I don't know, you know, do, do department stores in the end just become realtors? Are they just real estate agents and they lease space in a famous store? Maybe. I don't know. Like I went to Hudson Yards recently and it was kind of, whilst I wanted to hate it, it was kind of great to be in one place and just like hit a lot of different stores at once. That doesn't feel like New York to me because New York is so much about like wandering the streets and the coffee shop on the corner and the cafe for lunch and all of that if you're a tourist specifically. But if you are someone that lives here and needs to be efficient, there is something about a mall that is like, great, I just get it all done in one place. So I think that there could be a model in the future where retailers are truly just real estate agents and they lease space. And that could be interesting because it's like having a pop-up shop in Soho. But I think they really have to relinquish control. And I think that's the hard thing that they are not yet set up for. Definitely. To bounce around a little bit. (laughs) You talked a little bit about um, your email strategy. I'm sure, possibly, tell me, you're collecting maybe email addresses in in store. Um, Tell me about what that strategy is. Do you have folks, one person on staff, um, maybe um, working on content and um, how is that working for you, that strategy overall? Yeah, we do. We have somebody that works on content um, and we have somebody that, you know, we obviously have a photographer that we work with on a monthly basis for all of our shoots and all that kind of stuff. Content is um, extremely challenging. It's a very expensive endeavor. And if you want to get it right to the level that um, we do, it is something that you are constantly, it's a project that you're constantly thinking about. And I don't think that anybody has the answer yet. You know, I think you look at major campaigns by, you know, the huge houses and they are as uninteresting and um, as homogenized as one another. And then you look at like, you know, what people are doing like the row where they'll take out two pages in Vogue magazine and, you know, you open it up and it's like a beautiful landscape 
art picture and there's not a piece of clothing in sight. And you're like, okay, I mean, that's clever. I get it. But uh, I, I don't know. I think that the answer is that nobody has quite figured out content and you just have to listen to your customer and see what she responds to. And you can't change your strategy season to season based on that. But... I do think it's important to be nimble in terms of how you're looking at things. Like we've had models, for example, that have not resonated with the customer. And, you know, we take that seriously. And then we have other models that people absolutely love. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of surprising to me. So I think all of that is really important. But I ultimately, I look at someone like a Gwyneth Paltrow, who, you know, often gets in front of the camera herself and models swimsuits for Goop. And I'm like, wow, you know, that is really... Um, bold and it's plucky you know it's it's something that I admire because just to get in front of the camera for like even a family photo in a bikini I'm like oof, you know so to do that for on a major scale is I think it's incredible that she does that but that she is really living and breathing and being the endorsement of her own brand and I think there's something authentic about that and the word is obviously so overused but it's something that people obviously really enjoy and like and as a result they trust yep and more brands are going that way oh to be Gwyneth yeah exactly (laughs) definitely can you be a little specific about kind of some things that maybe some strategies content that has been a bust um I would say for example a model that we used that was extremely skinny um had very 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 short hair and she looked very fashion and cool and it you know, when I looked at her in person, I was like, oh, she's so cool. She's so beautiful. And then we had zero engagement. And I was like, wow. I mean, people don't necessarily want fashion in the traditional sense of what we grew up with, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Well, you know, when I was growing up and I was looking at fashion images and I was like, Kate Moss and people who just looked so glamorous. The glamour was a very different type of glamour to what it is today. You know, people want diversity. They want to feel that they are represented themselves and they don't necessarily feel a sense of representation when they don't see themselves in a picture or they don't see themselves in a model for season after season. You know, they can't necessarily expect to to see that every single season, but season after season. But then I also think that when you have a lineup of lots of different women I also think people are just trying to play it really safe and they're just trying to hit every box. So I think you have to stand for something, but I also think that you have to be really, really aware of who your customer is and how you are being inclusive. Right on. To bring to tie that all back to Fashion Week, the need to evolve. I was talking to some folks at Vogue and they were kind of talking about, I was like, what was what's going to be hot this season? What, what's really resonating already? They said, you know, they were talking about what was happening on the runway and runway versus presentation. But then they pointed out that the Rodarte girls did this, you know, lookbook or maybe it just came out on Instagram and it was just imagery featuring some, you know, celebrities they worked with or maybe their ambassadors or it could have been costly in itself just working with these celebrities. But the fact that that had the most, a lot of impact, that was something new that is shaking up the system because it wasn't a runway show that was getting the most attention and they kind of saw that as maybe hey this is this says something maybe this is where everything's going um can you talk about fashion week in terms of the evolution what's needed maybe what what's working and how fashion needs to evolve accordingly i honestly think that fashion week in its entirety will go away i don't think that it's going to last that much longer i think that you know 
Fashion Week was set up originally so that buyers could attend shows, so that wholesale retailers could have, you know, six months in advance to look at something, um, place an order, and then, you know, a house could produce it because you needed four to three, let's say three to four months to produce the level of you know, quantity that they need to produce for all the various doors that they're going into. That doesn't exist anymore. That isn't important. You know, nobody cares about a buyer being in a show. You know, the biggest, you know, brands in the world have their own stores. So it's about filling the front row with celebrities. Um, so maybe Kate and Laura have something at Redate when they're, you know, just going straight ahead and either paying celebrities or giving them clothes or whatever to be in their ad campaigns. Maybe that feels fresh again. It's all been done before. None of this is fresh. So people are just trying the same thing over and over again, flogging a dead horse. I think the ultimately the point is, is that you've got to try and do whatever is right for you and whatever resonates with your customer. But I don't think that, that Fashion Week, particularly not New York Fashion Week, will last that much longer. I think that London is very creative and you see a lot of creative coming out of there. So you might see young talent who don't have a lot of money, who are showing in East London and doing something really exciting. And London is still about fostering talent in a way that America is very much about commercializing that talent. Um, you know, you always kind of like, saw young creative come out of London and then make money in America. But then Paris, you know, the big dream of fashion, those luxury houses, those amazing shows, Chanel, et cetera, et cetera. They don't even need to do them during a fashion week. They can do them whenever they want. It doesn't matter. It's just a marketing, you know, stunt. Yeah. So um, the schedule, I don't think that it'll exist in the same way. Um, and I think that all of this will change dramatically. I think we know, we all know that celebrity is very, very important. But I also think that it's fewer and fewer and fewer celebrities who are making a mark and making an impact on sales. Again, to this point of pollution, there's so many celebrities. It's like how many people actually follow all of them. They only follow a few. So um, those people become more and more powerful. And I just think that, you know, you're just going to start to see things shift and change dramatically. And things will become more and more homogenized. And then you'll have people who will become more and more creative as a result of that. Absolutely. Love that take. <laughs> Thanks, Misha, for joining us. Thank you very me. much. Thank <laughs> you for having me this morning on a Monday early. Right and early, the day you're opening your pop-up. I know. Very exciting. <laughs> you're crazy. Thank <laughs> you <Yes>. so much. <laughs> Been told that before. Thank you. That's all for the bonus New York Fashion Week edition of the Glossy Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with the weekly Glossy Podcast featuring creator and designer Emily Current please head to the reviews section on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to give us a rating and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening. Listening.